Welcome to Fortress on a Hill. I'm Henry. I'm Danny. I'm Kagan. We're three leftist veterans that aim to expose the reality of the U.S. military's multiple wars abroad and to illuminate the damage military service does to Americans. American presidents throughout U.S. history have used American military and diplomatic power to force regime change of democratically elected governments around the world. Most veterans come from families vested in prior service, and American generals choose their own, ensuring diversity of thought never interferes with American warmongering. How can we stand by and do nothing while our military kills and destroys lives the world over, while telling Americans that all this death and destruction protects them from terrorists when nothing could be more false? Fortress on a Hill aims to change that. Well, welcome listeners to Fortress on a Hill. We uh, have a really great guest to talk to today about um, her new book. Uh, Chris Lombardi is here with us to discuss uh, her new book, I Ain't Marching Anymore, Dissenters, Deserters, and Objectors to America's Wars. Um, Her work has appeared in The Nation, uh, Guernica, I think I said that right, Uh, Philadelphia Inquirer, uh, ABA Journal, and at uh, YH. Uh, WHYY.org. Um, she is a uh, Philly native, and uh, we're really excited to have her here to talk about the uh, the amazing work that she's uh, written on dissenting veterans. Um, so, Chris, welcome. Thank you for coming to chat with us. I like this podcast a lot. I was very happy to be invited. Um, to start off, we you know we we. We do talk to a lot of dissenting veterans on this podcast, and everybody has a unique journey, a unique tale, so to speak, of their their movement towards becoming a dissenting veteran. I was wondering, could you please um, give the listeners a glimpse into your history as a veteran dissenter, how your journey began? Uh, well, where- so I said I'm not actually I'm not actually a veteran. I got into this because I um, I was a liberal kid who was hired to edit a magazine called the Central Committee of Conscientious Objectors in 1995. And I thought it was was just going to be, you know, doing this magazine. It would be cool. But that was the birth of the J.I. Rice hotline. And suddenly I'm talking to soldiers every day and learning that people who had joined the military were like me. They only wanted to be part of something bigger. And then they figured something else out. And I... That was that was my life for a long time. I, I uh, helped some women organize something early uh, organization um, on behalf of survivors of militia sexual assault. Um, I kind of coordinated the Jai Rice hotline for a while, and then when I went back east to rediscover myself as a writer, I never forgot about this, and I ended up in um, at Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism, where they, this guy runs a books a book seminar. And I said I wanted to write a book about the GI Rice hotline. Thought it'd be interesting to have, you know, on one side you've got all these like liberals and clerics and stuff, and then on the other side somebody at Port Benning who's just trying to figure out what to do. And my professor, because this was 2005, which was the year after John Kerry did become president, he said, "Why don't you write a narrative history of soldiers who sit dissent?" I was like, "Okay," and that's what has taken me 15 years. But I, I. I'm in the veteran space a lot. I, I'm one of these people that if someone's a veteran, a descending veteran, I trust them more than anybody else. Because I've, I've believed since 1995 that 
if we're going to have progressive social change in this country, it's going to be at, led by anti-war progressive veterans. Well, the fact that you're a um, someone who supports anti-war veterans and, and, and loves talking to them while not having served yourself, to me, makes it all the more powerful. Um, we talk on the podcast often about that they're all of the, the realities that we understand about being dissenting veterans don't require us to be veterans to understand them. And so, you know, you fit into a, a very specific, but powerful group of people that, you know, like uh, somebody like Scott Horton, who he's, he's didn't serve either, but he is immensely passionate about all these, all these issues. And so in a lot of ways that makes you, um, I would say more valuable in this particular space because you do make those connections and you didn't have the, the personal ones that we did through certain, well, I don't mean personal, but in terms of military yeah. service, those, those particular ones. So, um, tell, tell me, tell us how did your, your journey begin to, uh, write this and, and what, what was your ultimate goal with, with creating it? Because I was doing it for such a long time, I got to know a lot of people and kind of promised them this. So it was never an option not to not publish this book. And my goal was to, for people to understand that there is this progressive veteran space. And now you're talking about, as you say, Danny, patriotic people and the noble tradition that needs to be acknowledged and doesn't, is not. What I did not expect is that I found instances of it starting in 1777. So it turns out, um, how do you say, uh, naturally becomes also a journey about people who were hired to enforce things. What they were enforcing was the disposition of American Indians. And so, and the slavery, and then trying to to cast the journey of that, that that veterans and soldiers have been very upfront trying to change things. Well, it's, that's one of the things that jumped out at me as I was reading this, because I think what you show is that there's this unbroken line and you and I really do, I like the way you break down the, the chapters in a sense. I mean, showing that there's there's really not any pause in a maybe minority at key points, but significant strand thread of soldier military descent and resistance of a variety of types from, you know, from the from before the Constitution, right, all the way up to today and that that i think struck me i mean i knew a lot of the story i think i'm a historian of sorts and then i read the book and i love when i learn something new and i learned a whole lot of new stuff so i guess my question is um well it must have been hard to do first of all we'll get to the research but you know wh how does it instruct what do you what what does it illustrate do you think if you had to break it down to a few things showing that unbroken line what is what does that tell us it illustrates that there are some commonalities from the very beginning in terms of cost of war and at first soldiers weren't being paid anything and originally you see this descent that 
some of it is standing up against racism and stuff. But some of it is also signaling the cost of war. There's also, so you have the cost of war, you have going against racism, you have um, trauma that people are, are, how people can process the trauma and expose it becomes a thread that keeps going on. And I always think of it that is structured as kind of reverse funnel because at the end, it's specifically anti-war veterans like you guys. In the beginning, it's people who are against a lot of things and the same thread of people also standing up for their own citizenship. And I'm a consul historian like you, Henry. I, 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 didn't, I only studied history as an undergraduate, but I, it took me a while to understand that citizenship is such a big deal. I mean, you think that, that sounds bizarre, but you know what I mean? That, that originally soldiers were just asserting themselves as citizenship even before there was American citizen. And so the question was, to, how far does that citizenship extend? And what, what are the rights that come with it? Well, you know, I think that this idea of contested citizenship uh, does jump out a bit in the work and is something that is somewhat rarely discussed. I mean, there's this, this assumption that uh, living within the boundaries of, of the republic or the colonies or the nation uh, provides this, but I think the dissent does demonstrate that it has in fact been contested from the start. And so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm geeky and I like the, the, the history that's sort of forgotten, but, you know, there were two things that I used to teach at West Point, And I think I was the only one who really focused on it among the uh, people who taught the one one and they're, they're really illuminated pretty well in your book, but you know, there's the, the Continental Army sort of resistance, mutinies, Washington's varied responses, kind of letting it go and then shooting some, I mean, executing yeah. soldiers. And then there's right after the war, this sort of Sha- the Shays Rebellion story. And it's not just because we share a first name. I love Shays Rebellion. I love Daniel Shays. He's like one of my historical muses for any flaws he might have. But I guess my question is, it, You've said it for a little bit in terms of the thread, but in this country, which, frankly, if it has a religion beyond the apocalypticism that also runs through us, there's a certain religiosity and sanitization, canonization of the founders, capital F, you know, and and yet I think the Continental Army Mutinies, Shays Rebellion, that veteran of the war, you know, what's the... You know, what is what does that tell us about our foundations and if the foundation and and based on that, how do we run that forward? Well, Chase was. You remember the beginning of the Republic, only property owners practically vote. And that had any power at all. And he was the Chase Rebellion is veteran saying, no, we fought for this land and we we have that earns us something. And I've been doing an Italian thing. I'm sort of waving my hands around. You can't see it. Um, it says that social change comes when people organize. And I want, I want, them, I want someone to make a movie about John Daniel Chase. 
And at the moment when he sells his goddamn Lafayette sword, because he can't, he can't play his, pay his bills. And then what's going on between all those veterans, some of whom are going in and out of debtor's prison, saying this is not right. And what happened there, of course, was the Constitutional Convention that we have to lock this down in our way to prevent all this happening again. But it still changed the way people thought about what, what happened next. And I found that cadets, uh, probably particularly cadets or, or other you know, military academy students, did, they were a little shocked by some of the things that you describe in the book when I would present it to them, especially the selling of the sword and complicating their idea of Shays' Rebellion. I think one of the things that is lost when we talk about the convention, at least among popular understanding, there are some scholars who are digging into this. But one of the things that's lost is, is that what you mentioned, the role of soldier and veteran dissent and resistance in driving, you know, it's not the only factor, but it's an important one in driving us towards the Constitutional Convention, which we could, of course, debate whether it's a revolutionary or, or a reactionary uh, constitution. But right, right, exactly. B- but regardless, I think that what's interesting is with these these founders, again, who we've canonized, and we always say, what would the founders do? You know, it's just very much like, what would Jesus do? I really believe it's sort of a religion. It's a deification of the ancestors. I mean, we really got to look into its Eastern origins, but nevertheless, uh, and I'm kidding, but I mean, we always say, or folks always say, especially on the right, but not only, oh, what would the founders think of this? And of course, I always say, but of course, the founders didn't agree on anything. And and one of the things is when it came to this veteran resistance, when it came to some of the soldier resistance during the war that you bring out and, and after, uh, it divides the founders straight down the middle, or or at least it divides a lot of them, so that you've got people like Jefferson and Washington taking separate stands on Shays' Rebellion, but also others. And so I guess... Um, you know, do you see a link between um, the divisions in the founders about dissent, about their military and what its role should be, uh, and the way founders have been used moving forward? As a big fan of Hamilton, I've thought a lot about this. Um, and in one of the most recent horrifying um, justice getting appointed, um, a lot about this originalism. Then this idea that the founders were what all we, all we need to do is, is talk about what they wrote and we can, don't have to believe anything else and it's kind of the opposite of the original sort of Don Lockean principles on which they originally founded the country and there's a tension between believing in the rights of the citizen and believing in what the interest of property owner and the one where I don't say much in the, in the book, but I think it's underneath, you can tell, I'm critical of the capitalism that was also at the founding. And that's a lot of the issues, especially in early Republic, you saw was around that. Around that. I, wanted to, uh, I wanted to bring up a little bit about the um, economics of serving. Um, the book, I think, is a great reference for understanding how poor people in each given period, whether they were drafted or volunteered, um, the immense weight that was on them to try to deal with that. Um, 
uh, I got a little quote here from the book. Quote, as Schutz answered calls and sat down with nervous soldiers, one thing became clear. The draft may have officially ended, but it had been replaced with a poverty draft. One by one, the callers had seen enlistment as the only viable way to join the middle class. They would blurt out the same lines. I did this for college, the only way out of my town or neighborhood, to help when my mom or dad died or lost their job or lost their home. Very few had signed up to kill whomever, whomever they were told, whatever the job description. Chris, could you expand a little bit on the economics of service in terms of uh, some of the things that were, were mentioned in that quote. Interesting because you're talking about that that's, that's from the 1990s? No, from, from the, when the draft ended. Yeah. Um, it's interesting because right now serving it pays better than it ever has. And but that's when up in the that wasn't that wasn't so much. But economics of making a choice and trying to find a universe that works for you. And suddenly that you're told that your college is gonna be paid for, you're gonna have health insurance, gonna have all the taken care of. I mean it's kind of you know, military is the only bit socialist we have socialist institution we have. Um and you make the devil's bargain, in a sense. Like, okay, if you're giving me all that, I can do what you say. And when I was on the hotline, you could feel the tension in that. And people, people calling and, and trying to, they're trying to make ends meet. They're trying to find. Uh, answers for questions that are entirely open-ended about their future and their children's future. and it, it... Even now, the hotline is still going on. And they have cases where you don't automatically encourage somebody to get out right away because their kid has has diabetes or has um, cystic fibrosis, and how will they pay for this? And that becomes the issue. And so the the complete failure of society to address people's needs really comes to clear when that's the only t- only way that they can cover it is to stay in the military. All right. So, you know, there's, there's some obvious overlap, at least conceptually between, you know, I mean, bo- both our books are, are pretty new, uh, patriotic descent and, you know, and yours. And yet I think, so there's some similarities, there's some differences, you know, similar, some similarity in the title, some surface implications that it's about the same thing. Uh, but actually, I think there's an enormous amount of difference. And, and you do some things that are super valuable. And I think one of the main areas where, you know, my book is remiss. And it's partly because it was asked to be like a coffee table essay, you know, when it was pitched to me. But it's more than that. I think where I'm remiss is with a few exceptions, a lack of enlisted and rank and file voices. And that's interesting because in so many ways, my proclivity in terms of reading history is very much this bottom up stuff that, you know, Zen is, you know, popular for, but what do you think the value and importance is there in, in illuminating 
and sharing those, I mean, frankly, often erased or forgotten rank and file voices from the past. Well, you can tell my politics. I think that, that that's where it starts. And I think it's, it's almost an obligation to share the voices of people who would be, would be overlooked. And also because that's also the most accurate camera you've got on what's going on. Um, it's interesting because I've read lots of books about World War, for example, and almost all of them start with Woodrow Wilson and, and Norman Thomas and go from there. They're important figures, important figures. But that's a different, a different way of looking at it than looking at, looking at some kid making the decision or, or fighting themselves to draft and what do they do. And look at the majority of people, not, not even the majority of readers, majority of people, they're more likely to have the experience of the latter than, than from the common rules. And, and I have to say, having researched, you know, uh, academic stuff and, and then even popular sort of trade books, um, I know there are some difficulties there. So it is a lot easier, right, usually, to write a book about either well-trodden territory uh, in terms of historiography or folks who left a lot of memoir behind, write a lot of diaries, famous folks, right, where you can find a million articles about them and then also their raw materials. So I think that there's value in understanding the tradecraft a little bit. So maybe you could talk a little bit about the difficulties in uh, and challenges or lack thereof in some cases of researching these subjects who may have left less of a written record or a different kind of written record and, and, and therefore, or for a lot of other reasons too, have been maybe forgotten or, or sidelined. I mean, what, what was that like? One we haven't said yet, I have not said yet, is the word journalist. And I am, I was very pleased. I, I was late covered journalism. I thought I was going to be a novelist. And then I, I was just, just an activist and then realized that journalism was something that I was cared about. And so that's the other reason to start from the, from the bottom, right? You're reporting from the bottom. But trying to find, it's, it, become, it becomes, to a certain extent, I know that I'm, um, my narrative is somewhat shaped by stuff that happens to be to exist, even people who are not famous and so forth, like the uh, the polar bears. Remember that in, in at World War One, there's just one guy who wrote a really amazing set of right, right. stuff, and I just found that by being online and seeing that that there was a polar bear. Um, reservoir in in University of Michigan that I could get to. And that's probably not the only story of resistance to that war. And like and I, I have copies of the um send our send our troops home from their parents. But you find yourself putting things together in pieces like that. And as a journalist I have to make sure to confirm that what the guy said is not necessarily the only thing I go by of what happened. To confirm things three or four times as much as you can. But you always get intriguing to a piece like that. You start making a story out of it. You make a character. And that ends up shaping your narrative. 
Or William Apes, the the um, Native American, African American kid who joined the military because he was broke during the War of Eighteen Twelve, and because he published some books and then later become an activist minister, then you get more of a picture of what those years were like for young soldiers of color. Yeah, and I, I think that that's, you make a couple of interesting points there. I mean, first of all, there's, uh, there's professional reasons in terms of accuracy, as you're mentioning, to, to tell it that way. Uh, this is the majority of the voices. It's usually the, quote, trigger pullers that you're talking about. Uh, and also, I think what was interesting is the, the sort of, I mean, yeah, we're generally lefties over here, as you know. Um, and so there is a political inflection to it. But I, I, I think that what you're describing here, and tell me if I'm wrong, is to some extent, I don't know, like an, an ethical obligation, right? A, 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 to, to make sure that, that folks uh, have a voice that have been erased. Yeah, exactly. And, and so, it's, so, I, like, so it's like, it's not easily dis, as easily dismissed as just politics. Now, don't get me wrong, we'll be dismissed anyway, <laughs> folks who think like us. But I, I think that that's what you're raising a little bit. Does, does, it, does it have that feel that there's almost something obscene about not running from that direction? It certainly feel, it feels imperative. And I've been a democratic socialist since I was 12 years old, you know, so, um, but feeling that you have to go with the people that are most affected. The guys and I love doing the podcast, being able to share our experiences in the military with allies and supporters means the world to us, but we can't do all the work. We need you to share an episode of ours with someone, anyone, whom you like, might think might be affected by it. Young people looking to join the military, or parents advocating for one, conscientious citizens who care about the violence the U.S. wages in their name, advocates for women and people of color who understand the harsh environment the military creates for females and minorities, and inflicts on minorities around the globe, and anyone else you think it might affect, please take a moment, pause the episode, share this with them. Now, our podcast is supported in a few different ways. First, there's Patreon, where we're blessed to have an array of wonderful supporters helping the guys and I pay for some of the podcast's expenses. Those who contribute $10 a month or more will be mentioned right here as an honorary producer, helping keep you our listeners stocked with new episodes, but you don't have to contribute $10 a month to, uh, to help us for as little as a dollar a month. You can keep us going, paying for hosting and storage fees, transcribing old and new episodes, promoting and expanding the podcast and more. I'm sure I can't think of at the moment. So let's bring out these honorary producers and they are Will Arenz, Fahim Shirazi, James O'Barr, Adam Bellows, Eric Phillips, Paul Appel, Julie Dupree, Thomas Benson, Emma P., Janet Hansen, Lawrence Taylor, Tristan Oliver, Marwan Marwan, and the Status Quo Podcast. Uh, 
Your contributions are wonderfully helpful to us. Thank you so much. However, if Patreon isn't your style, you can always contribute directly to us through PayPal at paypal.me forward slash on a hill. Or please check out our store on Spreadshirt.com. Make sure you check for promo codes before you order. And now, let's get back to the podcast. Um, I'd like to take a minute and talk about a dissenter whom I, I don't believe we've ever really discussed in detail on the podcast. And I'm, I'm talking about John Kerry, the former senator and secretary of state for the Obama administration, uh, a Vietnam veteran who participated in the very first Winter Soldier hearings uh, regarding the horrifying loss of life that he observed in Vietnam. Um, he's a dissenter who did something I think few other dissenters can really comprehend, which was that he returned to a high level of government service to a place where he was involved um, in continuing to create and manufacture consent for war. Chris, could you um, share with the listeners a little bit of um, the picture that your book presents of John Kerry and how his uh, sentiments um, were a very powerful part of dissent during the Vietnam era. It's my my I'm, my brain is is split between now because the class analysis we're just talking about. One thing that is, I think I made clear in the book, is that Kerry was always from the class. You know, even when he was he was doing this amazing stuff with the VW. Um, he goes to the uh, Operation Raw, um, Robert American Withdrawal. He's, he he shows up late and sits next to Jane Fonda. But he still, at that point, gives a, a, a major speech about, as you know, as a veteran, what what he feels that we owe. And CIA writes writes a note about John C A R R Y, you know, so he was still put himself at risk. And many people, when he spoke at the Senate, he he he, he made that famous line about you know. Ask, ask someone to be the last one, the last one alive. Um, inspire a lot of people. And at the same time, there's never a sense that he was at, at risk economically. And that becomes, in the, in the period after the war, I guess after the 80s, he kind of goes back to his class groups. And it took me a while to figure that out, really have a sense of that. And I'm not saying this as he refused to let me interview him, but I have a sense of he knew what he could, the power he could have, and he decided to have it. Cool. You know, it's, it's, yeah, it, Carrie has, (sighs) funny, the, both the, the Carries were, uh, you know, Bob Carrie as well from, uh, from Nebraska were at one time or another in their careers fairly fairly critical of Vietnam and um, there was speculation if you remember at the time that Bob Perry's 
who had been a Navy SEAL, of course, for listeners who don't know, and, you know, lost part of his leg in, in Vietnam, um, there was this sense that because they voted against or because Bob Kerry voted against the Persian Gulf War, which was, you know, trumpeted as this like triumphalist, wonderful, you know, uh, heroic thing that that made it so that he was not a real option to run for president in 92. And, you know, I think there were a lot more factors involved in that. Do you think that some of the, I think there is a class aspect that is not talked about enough. And you brought that up really well, just a second ago. Do you think that once some of these ex dissenters, give or take at different points in their career, come into power that obviously there are monetary issues with raising money and all that. But it does seem to me that in many cases, a lesson might be getting learned through positive and negative reinforcement that, you know, being publicly anti-war often doesn't pay politically. I mean, do you think that played into uh, either of the Kerry's movements forward, especially John Kerry? And and can you think of anybody else that was sort of similar in their flip-flop? I mean, John Kerry's vote for the Iraq war that you were in is still incomprehensible to me. Um, but then again, only you know, so few votes against that. The post-9-11 um, environment was so weird. But I mean, I can't, I can't claim to know what's in everybody's head after 9-11 who feels that there's that they really have to be afraid of, of the Iraq war. But the, the economic stuff that we were just, we were just talking about, I, think that, I don't think it's an explicit thing, but I think that it makes it easier for them to backtrack. But, you know, and Rock Veterans Against War was founded in April of 2004, and they went to Boston because they thought that they could meet the new presidential nominee, nominee. And he refused to do it. He refused to meet with Veterans for Peace because he, he didn't want to be, you know, he wanted to be what he called swift-voted. And he was anyway. It's maddening because I feel like and I get yelled at a lot for being hard on Democrats. And there's like a theory that I'm like a secret MAGA enthusiast or like a fifth column for the Trumpsters, uh, which is like ridiculous. But do you ever get, I mean, I'm just way off script right here, but like, it's so maddening when you describe that every single time I hear it, that, you know, Kerry's sort of waffling and hedging and just weakness on in that moment, right? That that is just a pivotal moment that's been forgotten. And that's like an unforgivable thing to me. But as you mentioned, they swift voted him anyway. I mean, if I was advising, which would never happen, they would never allow that. But if I was advising Democratic candidates or figures, I would say, do whatever you feel, whatever is in your heart, and don't try to to hedge or strategize because you're- Triangulate, yeah. Yeah, it's not gonna save you. The, the, these people on the right are, they will never stop. You could mm-hmm. do anything. You could bow down and kiss, you know, uh, you know, Atlas shrugged on the floor <laughs> of Congress and they'd come get you anyway. They would still yeah. call you a wuss. That's what they do. It's who they are. They're big bullies. It's like, it's just so maddening because 
I don't know. Like you said, you can't get in his head, but it's it can be a, it can cause some despair, can't it? Have you talked to Bennett Van Ellsberg on the podcast yet? Unfortunately, not. But that is up there I mean, with our I mean, aspirations. That, that's, I mean, that's that's kind of the alternative, you know. There, someone who had power. He was, you know, he was carrying over the the telegram about the of Tonkin, Tonkin, and he moved back from that. So it's possible. It's, it's possible. It's a possible thing to do. And the fact that Carrie didn't do that because it's, it's not comfortable. One more historical follow-up that I, maybe it relates and maybe it doesn't, but you know me. Um, I, it seems that even if you go into the past, there is a – Kerry didn't want to get swift-boated, and I think people don't want to be associated with anti-war dissenters, especially if war is popular, or especially ever in some ways, as we've sort of fetishized the military for fear of support for war equates to support for troops and the invert the inversion of that. But I mean, I can't help but wonder if it runs to the past. And, and maybe I speculate too much and I draw too many parallels. But I was in I was in your neck of the woods on Monday uh, in Westchester at the grave of Smedley Butler. Uh, giving a speech about the 19th anniversary of, you know, the uh, the war in Afghanistan, and uh, now this was a, a like a libertarian slash populist Republican vaguely organization, and I'm the lefty that's there, and mm-hmm. it's a joke. Uh, but they invite me, and I go, and there's I get critique for that sometimes, but I, I say my piece, and I was supposed to connect this medley to today and give a little bit of history anyway. What struck me about how sometimes even the past can be kind of persona non grata, maybe I'm reading too much into it. It could have just been ignorance, but they had the Republican candidate for uh, Congress for the district that, if correct me if I'm wrong, Westchester is like a fairly significant part of, like a, like a fairly – and he went up there, and it's almost worth, worth watching his like eight-minute just mm-hmm. jumbled mess of a nightmare speech that, that like I made fun of, and so did other people I won't name who even are Republicans for the rest of the day. He admitted in the first minute that he had never heard – he did not know anything about Smedley Butler, didn't even know he was buried there, didn't know he was from there, and like just – it was the most – ridiculous thing and i couldn't help but wonder you know Butler himself to have his own biopic too oh my god right per, like how has that not happened yet how have we not had this 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 medley butler and the daniel shays movies right i um, mean you could go straight from the philippines to the bonus march it would be a great movie perfect oh absolutely and, and you know i don't know I, about medley butler until I started working with Tizio and heard about the Simon Butler chapter of Harvard's piece. And then I looked him up. I said, oh my God. So he's been very, he's been very, very hurt. That's interesting too, because uh, it makes me wonder though, um, you know, it is the sort of, like he should be the proudest son of Westchester in a lot of ways. I mean, I was looking at some of the public buildings as I was walking around and uh, he's just one example. And yeah, he was pretty prominent, but uh, I mean, do you think that the erasure? Yes. Yes. Do you think the erasure is, I don't know. Is it, is it, is it of even these most prominent ones? Is it purposeful or is it, 
something else. I mean, and, and not just him, but in general, these stories you're telling, especially at the grassroots, which is your real focus. I mean, these are not well-known past. And if we don't know that past, then we don't see the thread to the future and understand that we're, you know, we're in good company and maybe we still need this. I don't know. Do you, to what extent do you think it's purposeful or just kind of accidental or something in the middle? I think that um, Butler is not an easy figure because he was, you know, he was a, he was such, he was a, an active um, bad guy, so to speak, in the Philippines and so forth. So the passive people don't want to deal with him. And then socialists don't know how to, have not figured out what to do with him. Except for you and uh, what's his name, Spencer Rapone. I got Spencer to write an article. I, wrote, I edited a magazine. You know, I also I, um, work on the magazine of Democratic Socialist America. And they let me guest edit an issue for the summer of 2019. And I asked Spencer Rapone to write an article for me about Spencer Bradley Butler, um, who you and he must have talked at, at the West Point Connection. Right, right. And and he voted for, I believe, socialist candidate in 36, right? Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, he did. Yeah, fascinating, fascinating guy. But yeah, no, I think it's uh, it's interesting to see. I mean, and, and he's, in some ways, he's like an, a singular or anomalous example, but just in a general sense, the way there's like, there aren't really statues to dissenters. There aren't really even a whole lot of books they're less likely to land on the bestsellers list i mean let's be clear i mean no matter how good your book is and i hope i'm wrong right but for for all of our sakes including yours there will probably be seven more biographies of founding fathers or civil war figures before there's ever right uh, work done on some of these folks that makes it to you know the the polite pages the only um, biography of Butler I found was this thing called Maverick Marine. And it's a good book. Right. I read that. Yes. But, yeah. You know, it's not, it's not huge. Um, I, part of me, I have this ambition to write a biography of Lewis Douglas, Frederick Douglass' son. Right. But I think that probably someone else will write, will write it. And I want to help, help that happen. You know, the, the next thing I want, to ask you about is um the draft and i i you may have seen some of my stuff on it i, I waffle on that a little bit because i'm actually of two minds about it but um yeah it's hard not to be it's just one of those it's one of those dilemmas that just like i mean i'm a lunatic so i'll like wake up in the middle of the night like with a new thought about it and be like oh i've been wrong all along i'm totally misrepresenting this because it's just one of those tough ones for uh, for for um, someone who's progressive, for you know someone who's anti-war, it's, it's a challenge. We have to grapple with it. But I I think I want to know what your take in your research and and as you've been active in this movement, even contemporary, what role you think the lack of a draft has played, you know, if at all, uh, in presumably or really decreasing either the actual dissent right within the military and to some extent veteran community uh but do you but also the way the public sort of views the ones that do you know whether it's chelsea manning or you know one of it's the, hard, the, it's the hard, few it's hard to figure, actually 
Some of those people were not did not have the families at risk ever. So there's this this sense that everybody has that we all had skin in the game. But actually, middle class and upper class people in general did not have skin in the game. The only people who from that class who fought any of these wars did so because they wanted to. Um, and so this myth that we need a draft so that all of us will feel like we have have our stake in the war. I think it's, I, I think it's a myth. Certainly on the other the hand, way. on the other hand, I'm a, I'm a big fan of national service, and I could actually I can't believe I'm saying this, but I because I got started on all of this when I was a libertarian, and I was involved in anti-draft movement because I was I, I didn't want this kind of service. Um, I had a moment of libertarianism, but temporary. Um, but I think that national service. The national service, universal, I think, would make sense. And then our service can be you know, building a highway, working at a hospital. Bring back the triples. And, having, and yeah, then right. I think that would, yeah, the, 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 national, the, yeah, the national, national service of any sort. Um, and then I think that it doesn't. Doesn't, is not related to the concept of people caring about the war or not. I don't know that the draft is necessarily. I say that and not having lived through kids waiting to get their draft numbers. And, and certainly the way it was applied for the most part, especially in like the Vietnam era, but, but always, it was an, a mess. I mean, it was an utter mess, and it absolutely protected the privileged. I mean, Colin Powell is not an anti-war icon, right? God, uh, no. God uh, no. It it drives me crazy when when folks will put him up on some sort of pedestal. Uh, that being said, while I, the story I met when I met Colin Powell. Oh please! It's actually it's actually it is somewhat in the book, but I I, I don't use either. Remember that scene in the book where it talks about he uh, was in San Francisco doing a book tour and his activists come and end and out leaflets against him? Yes. If you could, I mean, for folks who haven't, like, please tell it because it's so awesome. I mean, Colin Powell was on a book tour for his, his book, An American Journey. And that was back when people thought he might run for president. And the organization that I worked for, Central Committee of Conscious Directors, refused to take a poll public stance against him because he was popular, especially because he was black and they didn't want to be accused of being racist. Now, one of my board members, this African-American woman named Tamara, I remember now, said, you're not speaking to his power if you don't do that. Um, so a bunch of us still designed a, a flyer that said, um, not a hero, that talked about the fact that he ignored me a lot. And I didn't know for a fact that he was the one that... Um, the uh, Thomas Glenn's complaint up to, and Major um, Colin Powell said, oh, that isn't happening. And don't do anything about it. But uh, anyway, we were, so we were there, and we showed up, and Ron, what's his name? Ron Kovic was there, and he confronted him. And that was, that was why it was in the book. But uh, I, I remember that um, I handed out those flares compulsively to everybody. Including a beautiful woman with wearing a beautiful dress, African American woman, turned out to be Mrs. Colin Powell. And later on, when Powell said he wasn't going to run, he 
he was he said was Addison Stone with his family, and I was like, okay, I did it. I'm the reason that Colin Powell didn't run for president. <laughs> oh, I love it. It's it's funny actually. Uh, Larry Wilkerson, Henry, correct me if I'm wrong. Didn't Larry say that he and I was first time I heard him say it on a pod. So I mean, we broke it. But no, I mean, uh, didn't he say that he felt that Colin Powell's wife was sometimes. I don't know, more aligned with him and would like warn him a little bit that like Powell could be like easily persuaded and too much of like a status quo believer a little bit. Larry kind of gave us a bit of an anecdote about that, right? Yeah. Yeah. That was, that. that's how I remember it as well. Super interesting. You can tell me whether I was right that I was wondering. Right. We, 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 that, that is awesome. I love it. I, I choose to believe it was totally that it was totally you. But I mean, but Powell on this draft thing, talking about it was was interesting because in my American journey, which is you know it's it's a platitude fest if we're going to be frank, but he does say about how you know deciding who would be drafted and who would be deferred and and all this and therefore who would die and live that but he calls it an anti democratic disgrace, which is stronger language right than you mm-hmm. often get from these folks. And it was actually like my favorite little bit in the book, right? Which otherwise is, is pretty, pretty forgettable in my, mm-hmm. and I don't like those kind of books anyway, but you know, he said, he said, I'm still angry that so many of the sons of the powerful and well-placed managed to wangle. I like that word wangle mm-hmm. slots yeah. and reserve and national guard units. And one of the raw, you know, the tragedies of Vietnam was this raw class discrimination, right? Um, important, definitely an important thing. And for, for him to say, it shows that this was pretty mainstream thought. And yet at the same time, I think the reason I'm of two minds on it is because, I mean, I, it, I don't know what would ever happen because there wouldn't be any constituency for it, of course, anyway. But if it, had, if it were actually applied evenly, then I guess it's all very theoretical, but it seems there might be an effect on mm-hmm. war choosing to go. I don't know. That could be a pipe dream. That could, I've called it the nuclear option, right? Bringing back the draft. Like it's in my darker moments where I'm like, nothing's going to work unless we bring back and make everybody go or, or that, or make like the president's fight with swords or something against the dictators. But <laughs> like, I mean, that would be great too. Like, like Troy style. But anyway, I just think it's an interesting aspect of all this. And Powell should have known, you know, I don't know how old he is, but he, when he was growing up in, in the Korean war, it was, it was uh, same situation. There's a, there's a draft, but again, the privilege got out. It wasn't a Vietnam War thing. Right, right. So wh- one more for me. Um, and I think, I, I guess it sounds a little cliche since I wrote a book with the name Patriotism in it, but I, I think it's important. I, there, Inevitably, there's. you may not get it directly, although in the social media troll days, I'm sure you will, <laughs> uh, but there's a potential critique that you can see coming from, you know, the standard patriotic American. I mean, this is what my uncles would say, right? If they even saw the front of your book, they might not open it, or at least some of them, not all of them. Some of them are thoughtful. They would say, uh, there's something un-American or illegal about the things you're highlighting. Like, why do you choose to highlight such controversial things as mutiny, desertion, refusal to exceed, um, you know, that I think there is an, an element that just thinks 
the bat like it's one thing to talk about maybe writing an op-ed as a dissenter but but uh, but like a mutiny or or going AWOL or all that um so I guess why do you why did you choose anyway I mean or maybe because why did you choose to highlight that and how does it complicate redefine or whatever our notions of patriotism to you know to lay these stories out I think that um every single person who did the things that I described not every single person most had a sense of believing in the country and were acting according to those principles and it makes sense to highlight people who are leaving something that's important I mean the guys who would not cross the border into Canada because I'm you know the country is only 50 years old but damn it's not country that does that I'd like to switch gears here a little bit and talk about um, environmental exposures um, re- researching and understanding all the different ways across different eras that those exposures have caused uh, very real diseases and pain is a, a, a very fundamental part of my dissent's foundation mm-hmm. um and the, this is not an all-inclusive list but it was what i i was thinking of offhand and in vietnam it was uh, asian orange in the first gulf war it moved on to depleted uranium and burning oil wells in operation iraqi freedom it was burning garbage um and while i i i have great sympathy for vets like me whose lives were exponentially changed um, by these exposures. These days, my real concern is for the lives of Vietnamese citizens who are poisoned by Agent Orange. Um, Mm -hmm. Iraqi citizens killed or sickened by depleted uranium burning garbage. The Yemeni citizens attempting to survive in the world's largest cholera outbreak from damaged sewage infrastructure. Uh, Pakistani kids tormented by the sounds of drones overhead, which usually ends up manifesting itself as PTSD, while not an actual, not a specific environmental uh, disease in the medical sense, is very much caused by environmental exposures. Um, The many foreign victims of American empire whose wounds and diseases become multi-generational and are carried from parents to children, including birth defects and lifelong debilitating illnesses. Chris, can you tell us a bit about what you perceived after studying all of that and, and, and the many mentions in your book? Um, how, how did you experience going through these kind of stories and, and what, did you, what did you bring out of it? You were thinking, Henry, I'm thinking most first about the fact that um, interwar veterans are right now working with survivors in other countries mm-hmm. in really exciting ways. And I had never been able to talk about that much. But thinking about Susan Schnall, who's in the book for her anti-Vietnam War activism, has spent years working with Agent Orange victims in both countries. Um, I think that what's fascinating about this is this is kind of where the scars of war are so tangible and 
I feel terrible that you guys have to live through it and the way that, that that's that's how you have to manifest it. But we're seeing the cost of war in the most literal way possible. Or, you know, the, 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 the verdict, if we were to call it one verdict, you know, is still very much out on the entirety of ways that people who served in combat zones and the people, this, the civilians, um, lived through them. Um, you know, like recent, recent research about uh, blast pressure um, and, you know, concussions just caused by being near machine gun fire, or even if you were the gunner firing the machine gun, that we still have such little understanding of this. You know, it's interesting, because I, I haven't thought about that much, and I should, I, I would like to hear more about it. Um, this is, there's just so much, you know, there's just so many things, and, and um, I, I think for me is, you know, that, that we, we want to see these places, these these people that have that we we brought war that our country brought war to, we want to see them be able to take steps back and and find some way to mitigate the damage from generation to generation. And after reparations, through, basically, say that again. Reparations, basically. It's essentially, it, it, absolutely. Um, but that you know that at at what point do future generations does. Um, is it able to stop? And the reality is, is that it doesn't, you know, that it, it is carried on and that we, we have too much of a mentality that, you know, the troops go home and we're, we're done with the war. We wash our hands of it and we, we, um, you know, and then after a while we know that vets are getting sick and then we study their illnesses. And when then the VA denies it, and then after many years, the VA stops denying it because the evidence becomes irrefutable. Um, and and what I think is the next biggest step our country needs to take and um, is trying to acknowledge that is trying to do real reparations work in the places we've been and of course the how that you know war never stays the damage of war never stays centralized you know refugees moving into other countries and and things like that that if if we're to really grab hold of our own humanity in terms of causing war, that means we have to acknowledge their humanity as much as we acknowledge our own. Um, yeah. And I, uh, I found that narrative through your, your book very, very powerful. Thank you. Well, um, I think uh, I think that's a really good place. Can we, can we mention the launch first? One, uh, one last thing? Oh, sure, sure. Go ahead. Um, on November 10th, which is um, the day before Veterans Day. Um, there's going to be a book launch where I'm going to be having a conversation with Adam, Adam Hochschild, who wrote that book about World War I, um, To End All Wars, mm -hmm. and King Leopold's World Ghost. And when I first met him, just when I was starting the book, I asked him for tips about it. He's, he's always been a big booster of the book. So we're going to be talking about writing about war and narrative nonfiction. And I thought that people who were interested in this topic might be interested. And um, I will send you the link to it. And if you want to put that on, on the podcast page, that would be great. Absolutely. If, I will, I will make sure. If that... you want people who are listening, want to go to just look, search for, for my name and the book and Adam Hochschild, 
Or would you go to Eventbrite? Eventbrite, I ain't marching anymore. Okay. And that's what it is. Yeah, I'll, I'll make sure to uh, link that in the show notes so that uh, people have a chance to go. And I will also promote that on social media. Um, I'll, I'll try to come to come watch as well. Um, It'll be great. Um, yeah, um, so before uh, before we close out here today, um, we tell the readers um, where they can find your additional work, uh, Democratic Left and such. And I um, I, I I I edit a magazine at Democratic Socialist America, DSAUSA.org. Um, but I also you search under my name, you see you'll see stuff from the Nation and from, especially from uh, Guernica. Um, but, and also my, uh, I'm sorry, net. Go to net. And if you want to know about my other stuff, there's a lot of selected articles. And that's you can find it. Um, and then and that has my, my blog about about the book and about all the issues that we talked about. net. that's the easiest part. All right, I'll uh, I'll make sure all that stuff makes it into the show notes, and um, uh, just before we we close out here, is uh, do you know what your next uh, your next project is going to be? What uh, what you're gonna continue working on into the future? Well, you know, I was asked to co-write a chapter for a book called the Oxford Handbook of Peace History, one of those expert industrial complex books that we can afford to buy, mm-hmm. but. Um, I sort of I said yes, of course, and I started to look into consciousness rejection around the world, and I realized it's not an international version of my book, and it might try to do a version of the international version. And not one something that takes twenty years, but look at some of the stuff happening overseas. You know, the Israeli resistors and um, and some of the, the stuff in Chile, and that would be might be worth it. And other than that, I don't know. That sounds great. Sounds great. I uh, I'll make a note to keep a to keep an eye out for that. Um, well, Chris, thank you. Thank you so much for coming to uh, talk to us. Thanks for uh, inviting me. Take care. Absolutely. And uh, thanks everybody for listening today. And we will catch you guys again next time. We're on Twitter at Fortress on a Hill, and also at Facebook.com at Fortress on a Hill. You can find our main blog page and our full collection of episodes at www.fortressonahill.com. iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Patreon, Spotify. You name it, almost anywhere you listen, we're already waiting for you. And hey, we're always in the market for more Patreon supporters. Please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com. And if you're not into giving us a monthly payment, think about giving us a couple bucks on PayPal link is in the show notes skepticism is one's best armor never forget it we'll see you next time and listen to my song i hope you'll pay attention i will not detain